This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author Stuart Kells and Melbourne University professor Ian D. Gow. They joined me in the studio to talk about a book they've co-authored called The Big Four, The Curious Past and Perilous Future of the Global Accounting Monopoly. Hello, this is George Megalogenis and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Yes, this is Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, as that wonderful man, George Megalogenis, just said. And as I promised, we have two fabulous people in with me to talk about a book that they have written and it is entitled The Big Four, The Curious Past and Perilous Future of the Global Accounting Monopoly. And I have with me Ian D. Gow, who is a professor and also director of the Melbourne Centre for Corporate Governance and Regulation, which is based at the University of Melbourne. He is also formerly a professor at the Harvard Business School. And uh, I also have with me Stuart Kells, who is a Melbourne-based author and has written a range of books, uh, one previously about the Penguin Books uh, dynasty or family, which is also a great read. So thank you, uh, Ian and Stuart, for joining me. Oh, apologies. There we go. You can say thank you again just so that they can hear your beautiful voices. You go first, Ian. Thank you, Amy. (laughs) Thanks, Amy. Now, uh, we're going to discuss this book, and gosh, there's a lot um, to talk about. Uh, We obviously won't get to talk about everything, but that's the point, so people can read it uh, themselves. But I certainly was particularly interested that you open the book with a history about uh, accounting and certainly also um, how it was related to science and also magic and uh, and these kind of interesting relationships that existed that I was certainly unaware of. So um, you, you talk about the first uh, national accounting body, the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales, which was founded in the 19th century. So that's fairly recent history. But the history of mathematics and accounting goes far beyond, uh, at be back beyond that time. So we're looking at something like uh, the medieval period and uh, certainly a lot of scientists that you talk about such as uh, Galileo, Copernicus and Sir Isaac Newton had interests and activities involving mathematics and accounting. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, You do mention uh, one of the key uh, reforms or early ideas that was kind of brand new was something called uh, double entry bookkeeping. And I thought I'd open that just to get the torture out of the way to begin with. So who wants to have a crack at that? I mean, double entry bookkeeping, it's sort of, it's sort of, uh, it's a very interesting idea. It's a subtle idea. Um, but the basic idea is, you know, prior to, prior to sort of Italian Renaissance, basically around the, you know, the end of the 14th century, um, uh, in the area of the Medici, basically you had sort of a particular view of accounting. You had sort of the view of a monarch, for example, basically trying to say, oh, how much stuff do I have? And the way they would sort of tally that was, okay, just add up all the, list all the things that I have uh, that I'm entitled to. Um, double entry bookkeeping sort of takes a different perspective and it's a perspective that sort of carried all the way through to the modern day. And that's a perspective that everything has an owner or everything has a claim on it. And that's basically the idea of double entry bookkeeping. If I'm sort of recognising something that I have, I'm also recognising either the stake that someone else has in it or the stake that I have in it myself. So there's always this, this, these two entries that are made in the accounting system. And that's, that's the basic idea. Um, and 
Yeah, go ahead. So the history that you mentioned is... is Sorry, and for some reason your mic isn't working. Just a second. There we go. How's that look? Yeah, perfect. Great. That history that you mentioned is really important. What we've tried to do is really locate a lot of what you see today in that, in that history because in, in the very first period um, of, of, of what we now recognise as accounting, um, the, a lot of those boundaries that we think of today didn't really exist. Mm. So boundaries between sort of science and magic, uh, boundaries between accounting and, and other services like legal services really weren't as, as stark uh, perhaps as they are today. Um, and you, you really see uh, fascinating beginnings of all of those structures uh, in, in the Renaissance and even mm. a long way back, the very, very first books in you know, ancient Mesopotamia were a lot of them were financial records. Yeah. And I mean, one of the, the particular excerpts I thought was a bit funny and maybe it's because I'm a more of a humanities person, but um, you write that early in the 5th century, St. Augustine issued a warning. And uh, this is an important warning for everyone out there today. Uh, the good Christian should beware of mathematicians and all those who make empty prophecies. The danger already exists that mathematicians have made a covenant with the devil to darken the spirit and confine man in the bonds of hell which is not a, not a great outcome no yeah, definitely uh, we think <laughs> about the, hell. that kind of movement from the roman numerals to these you know very exotic eastern hindu arabic numerals and that mm. in itself was was very controversial people could get in trouble just by using the new numbers and they always had this sort of aura of mystery and, and being slightly disreputable. Um, and that carried through a long way into into the late Middle Ages. Yeah. And in, t in terms of the Renaissance, because uh, you talk a lot about the Medicis and you draw a lot of um, comparison between the mm. structures that they established and how the Medici Bank uh, worked, particularly in Italy, but they obviously were much broader in their scope and operations. Uh, but most people would know the Medici family as being a very rich family that had close ties to the Catholic Church, um, but they may not be very closely aware of their accounting and mm. financial activities. So could you share more about that? And then we'll move into, I guess, some of those comparison points um, between the, the Medici Bank and that family and then how these uh, monopolies have been set up. Yeah, I mean, at some level, you could sort of view the the sort of uh, the, the the start. The modern modern accounting history is basically starting with the book of Pacioli, which is basically sort of written right at the end of the um, Medici Medici period. Uh, in some ways, what he was just documenting was sort of this, what what Medici had been doing all along. So basically, it's almost as if you know the Medici were right there at the sort of starting point of modern accounting, as we and which is sort of the you know it's called the language of modern business essentially. Uh, so he, they were right there at the right there at the start, I think. And you see these characters like um, we know Lorenzo the Magnificent. Anyone who's done any kind of art history yes. would know Lorenzo as a patron and and you know, right in the middle of the Italian Renaissance. They're hugely culturally influential. Mm. Which was really the only context I had for the Medici's until I read this book. Yeah, they're patronising key artists, mm. you know, literally Michelangelo and Leonardo and people like that, um, and and sculpt sculpture uh, libraries. Um, they were they were right in the heart of that. But at the same time, they were running a family business. And uh, as, as we point out in the book, Lorenzo was magnificent in all sorts of ways, but as an administrator, uh, not so magnificent. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there's this really interesting arc of the, the Medici starting off essentially as a criminal syndicate mm. um, with you know, murderers and standover men and that kind of thing, becoming more and more respectable. 
and being built um, by a couple of key pioneers, including Cosmo, and building this amazingly strong relationship with the church. And then over time, that that kind of um, uh, family business really, really uh, atrophying and and, um, weakening and all sorts of different factors coming behind that. But as Ian said, the structure of the Medici Bank was in in a lot of ways an antecedent to the big four because you had that uh, network of of national partnerships, each one supposedly insulated from the disasters and the fiascos that that the peer firms were experiencing. But over time, the pressures were such that that kind of protection broke down. Mm. And you quote Niall Ferguson uh, in the book and said, and as you've just said, the Medici were more gangsters than bankers, a mm. small-time clan notable more for low violence than high finance. So there's so many conflicts and, you know, contested uh, perceptions that are both true at the same time here in this story. And also um, that uh, I found it hilarious but not so um, obviously at the time <laughs> that uh, that when these kind of things happened and their family members got in trouble, they would be paying people off to get them out. Mm. You know, so this is just, it's really, you know, Italian mafia style. Yes, a lot of those currents continued through the more respectable phase of the Medici. There's that um, period with the anti-Pope uh, and he gets in trouble for, you know, this list of charges, which is there's like 10 or 15 really serious charges, including, you know, incest and murder and et cetera, et cetera. And then um, fortunately the number of charges is reduced to about five mm. and they're five still ex- extremely serious things. And he goes to jail and he only gets out when the Medici come along with this massive ransom and, you know, um, rejuvenate his career in the church just before he dies. So there's yeah, all sorts of interesting shady stuff. A lot of what the mm. Medici were doing was hiding wealth um, because people in the church could, could actually uh, accumulate fortunes in different ways. And so that, that sort of aspect of discretion and secrecy around banking uh, and around aspects of finance really dates from that period as well. Mm. And they were also really kingmakers in the Catholic Church by mm. funding certain cardinals and, um, and... And punishing others. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Taking away their funding, they could influence uh, politics in Italy. The the boundaries between the Medici Bank and the Florentine state and, and Italian politics generally was really fuzzy. So mm. that's right. They were at the heart of a lot of political and ecclesiastical affairs, definitely. Yeah. And so that's perfect segue into the fact that uh, these accounting monopolies, as you write in this book, also have um, some blurring mm. distinctions between the state and these, uh, these major corporations. They're multinationals. And we see, you know, a very contemporary example is that more and more uh, the public service is being reduced and we are outsourcing to these firms for accounting and also consulting uh, and advisory services. So there's that influence that they now have in public policy creation. But um, moving from the Medici specifically into how the big four began because I'd like to kind of get an understanding of how this all started because they didn't start out as four they mm-hmm. started out as much larger and, and we've soon, um, you know, condensed the number but broadened the impact. So, um, Ian, could you talk a bit about how uh, these accounting firms began, particularly, obviously, in Britain? Right. So, they began in, began in 19th century Britain. So, most most of the names of the partners that you see, even in the firms today, you can sort of trace them back. Not all of them, but certainly a lot of them you can trace back to, to 19th century Britain. And all of the firms sort of have antecedent firms in the United Kingdom, in in, in London mostly, uh, and sort of 
they were sort of there right at the dawn of modern capitalism in some ways. So the, the sort of the establishment of the modern corporation was something that happened sort of the mid-19th century and, you know, the, the accountants were there right at the beginning. You know, the idea of having an aud- having audited financial statements was something that came around then. And so by the end of the 19th century, you've sort of gone from nothing in terms of these firms, none of these firms date before the 19th century, to essentially uh, these firms all being in, in operation in some ways. Uh, and also by that stage already having some degree of uh, sort of professional respectability sort of starting from nothing uh, less than 100 years before. Mm. Uh, then things sort of in the 20th century sort of an era of where they sort of extended beyond the United Kingdom. They extended, you know, into the United States and then they sort of around and today they're now global organisations. And I, I think the sort of... The, the link you mentioned earlier, sort of the link to the state, I mean, they've sort of always been closely tied to sort of regulatory changes. So this, mm-hmm. the formation of, the, of companies in the 19th century Britain, you know, the establishment of the SEC and the requirement for audited financial statements in sort of the, you know, 1933, 34 um, response to the, the, the crash mm-hmm. in, of 1929. You know, there's sort of this close relationship between the big four and the state. Um, and but they certainly lobbied in regards to the establishment of those regulations. Yeah, there, were, there was actually uh, there was conflict there at the time. You know, some people thought it was a good thing, some people thought it was a bad thing. Um, there's sort of this tension that's always existed. You know, do we want to so have lots of regulations, or do you want us to have this sort of you know, almost professional aloofness in some sense uh, from that kind of stuff? But certainly, the reality is that you know the requirement for audited financial statements is a big driver of sort of the establishment of the the big eight as they were by the mm-hmm. 1980s and then the big six and then the big five and then by this, you know, early this century they became the big four in somewhat uh, un- unhappy circumstances. Um, but, but basically the sort of the infrastructure was sort of there all there by about the 1980s where there were eight of them and then just sort of this drive for consolidation mm. uh, pushed them down to the big four. And I, I think there's a consensus today that the, the, there won't be a big three. Uh, there can't be a big three. <laughs> uh, just the nature of the business they're in, uh, the importance of their role in, in the economy. Uh, we just, you know, we can't live without having only three of them. Uh, mm. So I think... Um, Hopefully the title of our book will work for a few editions yet. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, we're, we're, we're quite timeless. grateful to the firms to, that they've held on, you know, through the printing process. And yeah. Kind of <laughs> it's worked out very well. Yeah. Yes, and one of the things that um, I'd like to touch on in the establishment of uh, accounting firms was that there was kind of a, a hold on to a principle of integrity and independence. Right. There was this important idea that right. accountants were independent. Mm-hmm. They were there just to do the numbers mm-hmm. and they weren't there for kind of fudging, I guess. Is the, and, and also they weren't there for further services. Right. It mm-hmm. was quite a narrow purpose right at the beginning. Right. And we've now seen also a bit of, um, I guess, it, it becomes more porous in terms of the role of the accountant now and whose interests they're representing. And that's something you also draw out in the book. Yeah, I think, I mean, one thing to point out is they're sort of hard to point to a, to a moment in time where there were sort of these pure audit firms. You know, at the very beginning, they actually started out, a lot of their work was actually in bankruptcy. They were sort of almost mm-hmm. jack-of-all-trades very, very early on. But certainly there was a period in their history, sort of from the late 19th century, sort of into the mid-20th century, where the brand was very much about this sort of this uh, probity, this notion of probity. You know, we, if you want to get your financial statement signed off on, you want to sort of go to one of these respectable accounting firms, the whole idea of the mm-hmm. professional accountant, having independence, having judgment, all these kinds of things. It's really the core of the brand. Uh, so even though it's sort of hard to point to a point period in time where they were just purely audit firms, it's always sort of been the core of the firms and it was perhaps more so in the past than it is today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, the the nub of the challenge they face is they sort of got this this challenge because they've got this, this legacy, this history of this all 
audit business, but then today it's becoming a less and less important part of their business. It's it's perhaps a, a less profitable part of the business and, and they're continuing to grow. So in Australia, they're growing 10 to 15% a year, which is astounding given the, the age and scale of these organisations that they're growing that quickly. And it's quite impressive, but um, it does range the possibility of, you know, how, how far can they stray from that core business and still retain this sort of brand, this reputation for probity, basically. Yeah. And there's also um, an interesting point that uh, that you both make about taxation and how in that particular service that uh, those big four are currently offering, there is this conflict between representing uh, the client versus their requirements to pay tax. And we see a lot of uh, wealthy families, individuals, corporations managing to reduce their tax burden um, through fairly legal means. They're not necessarily breaking the law, but they are utilising expertise of these firms to find loopholes or areas of which they can get around paying tax. So, I mean, in this kind of way, how do we reconcile their Mm. role and the way that we should be viewing them as a public? Well, you're 100% right. There's a real tension there between that core reputation of auditing and being high probity, high integrity firms, whereas in tax, it's a very different kind of service. It's much more secretive. And they've been drawn into some of the big high profile tax scandals of the last few years. Yeah. LuxLeaks, Paradise Papers, Panama Papers, and in 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 um, I think it's reasonable to sort of perceive them as having traded off a certain amount of brand quality uh, in order to provide very lucrative and and quite secretive and sometimes not um, you know not not the kind of services that you'd want to sort of associate their brand with. So mm-hmm. you know this idea of moving money around the world and that kind of thing. So there's a real tension in the different service lines between, on the one hand. Um, chasing very, very commercial and, and lucrative sorts of services, and, and on the other hand, you know, eroding that reputation for you know acting in the public interest. And this this has come out in a number of the cases where there's been this explicit debate: do the firms have a duty to protect the public interest, or mm. are they primarily operating in the private interest? And very much in the tax space in particular, that privileging of the private side has got them into trouble. Mm. And certainly, I mean, every corporation has some perhaps ethical consideration to be a good corporate citizen at mm. least. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's then representing public good, I guess, is another thing. Well, you, I mean, you contrast the the kind of tax story to the environmental story. Mm. The way we think about big corporations now is that they really have a strong envir- environmental obligation. You don't want them going around trashing the environment. And this debate has come up in, in the UK. What's the obligation of these big corporates to the public purse and to public services. And a couple of MPs have come out and said, okay, the obligation of the big four is to maximise the amount of tax that their clients pay. Now, that's obviously not necessarily where they'd want to go and not necessarily where we would say they should go. But Mm. it's a really interesting thought construct to say, well, in an environmental space, we've been really, really strict in saying you have a very strong duty. But in terms of public services and and, and um, you know, taxation, the the duty and the obligations of of the firms and and um, and, and their advisors uh, is is much less clear. Yeah, and I just want to touch on before we move into more contemporary discussions again. Why exactly did we see you know starting from around eight down to four? Like, what was the catalyst for these types of mergers? 
a whole bunch of different forces operating at once. I mean, there were rules around some audit audit firms could only take on certain clients if they were less than a certain proportion of their revenue, and therefore there was an incentive to get bigger. But it's really been what driven primarily by this brand. Uh, coalescence, this incredible, you know, the value of those historical brands, mm. which is really interesting. And it's a paradox because those brands, um, while they're very powerful and recognisable, and PwC is is up there with Lego and you know Disney, those kind of brands. But if you look more closely at the history of the firms, there's that history of scandals and and, and legal issues over the last you know, century or so. Mm. But also there's some really curious characters. I mean, you know, in Price Waterhouse case. The waterhouses and the prices uh, were some um, pretty eccentric sort of characters. So that history is is almost invisible. It's, mm. it's, it's almost like a Teflon um, brand where they've lost a lot of that history. So what we've yeah. tried to do is is bring that history. A do bit you want to share one of those eccentricities? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Nicholas Waterhouse was a really interesting character. He was the second generation of the waterhouses. So Edmund yeah. Waterhouse was the, was the was the sort of prime mover. And his son wasn't interested in going into accounting at all. He was more interested in collecting stamps and <laughs> uh, going to the sort of dissecting rooms at the university where he could you know watch people cut up cadavers and that kind of stuff. He wrote a couple of letters home in his own blood. And so he was, wow. he was, he was not the kind of, you know, cliched accountant. He was, he was a pretty edgy sort of guy. And um, there's some wonderful stories of him in later life with his very racy and glamorous wife holding these kind of, you know, cocaine parties at their very glamorous house. And with, you know, the, the sort of jazz age, you know, um, experimentation. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty wild time. And the, the contrast between that and, and his father, who was a Quaker, mm. you know, very austere, saw himself as a kind of Christian gentleman protecting the public interest. So these, these um, you know, tensions and these breaks in the history are really quite, quite strong and quite interesting. Yeah, and they continue to evolve now and reputationally, as we've referenced, certainly some have faced a great deal of scrutiny and mm. possibly may continue with our Royal Commission as well. Um, but one of the things that I want to pick up on is, and that you talk about, is that they're almost competing now, not just among themselves, but with law firms. And that seems to be something that would cause quite a lot of concern for the law profession. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think there's a number of professions that they're moving into. I think, yeah. I mean, one thing you have to recognise is it, it, once they move away from their sort of core business, which is, is audit, it's taxed to some extent, once they move out, out into these other fields, they're very large professional services organisations, so they're very intimidating in that regard, I presume, for the law firms, for the consulting firms and so forth. But in some sense, they're sort of moving further and further away from sort of their core advantage. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's sort of, I'm guessing the, there's sort of a, a little bit of a sense that, you know, they're moving into our markets, but, you know, in some sense, you know, they don't really get what we do. Yeah. Um, so I suspect there's sort of trepidation, but also uh, not so not so concerned. Maybe sort of a trade off there. I think in terms of how those firms are looking at the the big four moving in. Yeah. I mean, they're moving into things like advertising yeah. and marketing and technology, social media, social media, social media all the you know. It's mm. almost it's almost not a business that they don't seem to be sort of dabbling in at, at some level. Um, but but so, so in some one 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 wonders where they're sort of viewed as like Amazoning in some sense those markets, or are they sort of viewed as sort of getting a little bit beyond the sort of of their, their real skill set. And, and that's, yeah. that's very much an analogy with the Medici Bank because they started off very, very specifically as, as, as a, a bank. Mm. Um, but towards the end, they were a manufacturer, they were an importer, they were dealing in slaves, they were doing all sorts of things. They were importing minerals, um, they, were, they, they were insurers, uh, they were toll collectors. And there was this sense that they'd kind of strayed a long way from their core 
strengths. Mm. Uh, and every time they entered into a new market, there were new risks that they faced, new controls that were needed, new expertise in, in their leaders. And all of that was a little bit lacking and, and that contributed to the collapse. And I guess that brings us to part of the title of the book, which is The Perilous Future, uh, because as you do expand into more areas that perhaps you're not particularly strong at, does that diffuse your brand, your reputation, your ability to be effective and profitable? I think the brand point is particularly important in the sense that if you're in more businesses, you're doing more things. I mean, if you're handing out the awards at the, the Academy, <laughs> at the Oscars, you know, but the, the more things you're doing, the more risk of sort of, you know, hitting snags from a reputational perspective. Mm. And so as you, as you branch out in more markets, your ability to sort of control the core brand becomes that much weaker. And so that's definitely a concern I think uh, the firms must have is, you know, just how do we how do we manage the brand risk for organisations that collectively have 130 billion US in revenue, have mm. nearly a million employees? How do we you know, everything is about the brand and our people. How do we manage that process going forward? And, and sort of coming over the top of that, there's a whole bunch of sort of meta uh, pressures around regulation where regulators have said, you know, it's too concentrated, particularly in China. They've said, you know, we're yeah. not going to have the big four come and dominate. We want to have a Chinese big 10 to compete and with China the And China can do that because mm. they're obviously a one-party state. And they've got much more control over mm. the market. That's right. So they don't want to have a situation where the four are dominant. There are, there are technical and technological changes coming through with blockchain and, mm. and digital auditing and all that that are really undermining the old audit model, which was very, a lab, very much a labour-intensive sort of model. There are other pressures as well coming from new entrants and smaller-scale mm. ones, well-capitalised firms that are you know, interested in the gig economy and things like that. So, um, you know, there's this, this sort of brand pressure, but then there's these really kind of fundamental existential threats as well. And then there's the, the risk of, of yet another audit calamity. Uh, the, the firms are, are in trouble in South Africa in a big way, in India, mm. in the Ukraine, uh, at different places there have been uh, different individual big four firms have been banned, sometimes temporarily, uh, from providing audit services. Um, so th there's a question of, of what sort of point do, does, do they reach where the regulators say, look, enough's enough, you're too big to fail, um, it's not competitive enough. There's, there's been this sort of hollowing out of auditing. We really want to do something different. Yep. And the different thing might be you know, a, a radical transparency type uh, mechanism where, where we move to different kinds of accounting using blockchain and things like that. Mm. Or it could be uh, dividing up the firms into you know, audit-only firms and advisory firms. Uh, and there's all sorts of different futures and we, yeah. we, we walk through a few of those. Um, but uh, I think there's a sense, particularly in the UK and, and maybe in the US, that we're, we're, we're inching towards that uh, tipping point. Yes. And one of the messages that I've received from some of the senior partners in um, firms like EY has been that in response to these major existential threats, they've got special hubs and teams that have been set up just to disrupt themselves, mm. to completely disrupt their own model before other people disrupt them so that they can stay ahead of the game. Is that... Well, there's, there's two, two or three pretty fundamental problems with that. Yeah. One is that disrupting yourself is very disruptive mm. and, and you can't just sort of um, keep a lot of what the old model was and then suddenly do something else and you know, change the battleship into, you know, five different catamarans because they've really made an investment in, in the brands yeah. and in their structures and in their systems and that partnership model. So to suddenly move away from that. But also 
in the model that they're in at the moment, they're quite capital constrained. So their ability to raise money on equity markets, their ability to, to do sort of entrepreneurial work and startups is much more constrained. Mm-hmm. Capital's more expensive for them. And there's all sorts of other reasons why, you know, compared to a Google or an Amazon or, or um, you know, a, a um, Tesla, uh, their, their ability to kind of uh, fundamentally retool and go into a different direction is quite limited. Mm, perhaps it's more of a public exercise to get keep people's confidence in their ability to stay ahead of the game well, when you there's think so about, much change. Yeah, definitely. You think about their structure. So they're this, all these different um, geographical partnerships. They're not owned by the head offices. The head offices are actually subsidiaries of mm. the geographical partnerships. So all of the partnerships within one of the brands can't succeed at the same time at the same rate if there's a disruption. Um, and also all four firms can't succeed at the same time at the same rate. So if by chance one of the the firms does come up with a fundamentally different way of providing audit services, that's going to have winners and losers within the franchise network and then across the franchise network. So um, disrupting themselves in a non-disruptive way Mm. is basically impossible. Yes, and you and we have been alluding to this structure, which is based on partnerships and uh, those partners having equity stakes in the organisations themselves. So mm. their performance is very much tied to uh, the, the being part of this organisation and heavily investing their own capital into it. Yes, um, that's one reason why. Uh, it's certainly not the only reason, but it's one reason why people have said that women haven't advanced as strongly through these organisations. I'm not sure whether I particularly agree, but you have seen more women uh, being part of these, reaching senior levels like partner. We've seen Cindy Hook become CEO of Deloitte in Australia. We have a female chair of KPMG in Australia. So there has been some kind of movement in the, uh, I guess, gender diversity of these big four banks, uh, not banks, sorry, accounting firms. Do you think that's at all disrupted the culture or is there some form of monoculture that that exists? I I think um, the move into more diversity has been a success story in the big four. They certainly have done very well. They've got very good um, policies for inclusion and, yeah, they've been quite transparent about the, the objectives around diversity and they're making good progress. But it's been a long road to get where they are now. Uh, And it is fair to say that it was quite a blokey monoculture for a very long time and there were some pretty appalling sort of episodes. Mm. And and there is a sense that the way they were handled was probably a little bit different in a partnership firm than it would have been in a public company maybe. Um, So, yeah, I mean... full marks for where they've got to and and for some of the trailblazers that are there at the moment. But, yeah, there has been a real cultural clash on the way to get to where they are at the moment. Yeah. Ian, do you want to add something to that? No, no, I think think that's true. I mean, I think it's just... The other thing is it's just very challenging for such a geographically diverse organisation to sort of move ahead at one pace. Mm. Uh, And so I think that's just, you know, there's a lot of cultural challenges. And, I mean, coming back to the idea of disruption, I think, you know, the idea is, you know, if if the New Zealand operations want to do things very differently but doesn't quite work as well for the US operations or the Australian operations, you know, that's going to be a real challenge in terms of bringing that disruption. And I think, you know, the culture shift is probably going to work at different different paces of in different jurisdictions around the world too. Mm. And just finally, in your view, I'd love to hear both your views about Australia's context with the big four that we have here. Do you think um, there is a model that may become palatable that will increase transparency and potentially competition? Well, I think that some of those innovations we talked about before really do offer a lot of improvement around corporate uh, transparency and mm. generally the quality of these kinds of services. My view is, the, and our view, I think, is the more you know about 
the, 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 how the companies are performing and the quality and the type of services they're getting, the better it is. The sunshine is the best you know, mm. disinfectant. And really the Royal Commission is a classic example of that. It's shining a light on some of these sort of things you're seeing in the financial services industry is really going to be, I think, a positive force ultimately. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about these technical innovations and the growth of transparency, but it's going to be a, a rocky road for the firms along that way. Yeah. And also the hierarchy, I guess, when um, one of the references in the book is that, you know, you get this great uh, pitch from these senior partners and then a client might discover that they end up with quite junior to middle level people working on their project and don't necessarily get the outcomes they were promised. So that's a common issue in those kinds of firms and, and it is then hard to know what you're receiving. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a challenge with a lot of professional businesses. Mm. You know, uh, the people the higher up in the food chain are always going to cost a lot more than the people lower down the food chain who are always going to have this this tension. And I don't think it's specific to accounting. I think it's a lot of professional services. Um, but in terms of the what what potentially could be different in Australia, I think uh, there's sort of I think there's a fear, and you see it probably more with say the US opera, you know US uh, regulators. that are sort of concerned of another Arthur Anderson, another going from the Big Five to Big Four to Big Three. Mm. Um, but I think more recently you've seen you know markets like Ukraine, like India, like South South Africa, where they've they've been able to say we don't care about the global operations, we care about what's happening in our jurisdiction. And so they've been able to take much more radical action to sort of address their concerns. And I think Australia might be in sort of a, a similar sort of intermediate position and sort of being able to say, okay, we might be able to do things a bit differently here, regardless of what happens in the EU or the US or the, the sort of glo- more global context, I think. Yes, well, um, I would love to keep talking about this, but unfortunately <laughs> I'm heading up to noon, which is a shame. But I encourage uh, everyone who has enjoyed our chat to check out your book, which is uh, Out Through Black Ink in Australia, and it's entitled The Big Four, The Curious Past and Perilous Future of the Global Accounting Monopoly. And I've been speaking with Stuart Kells and Ian Degau in the studio. Thank you both for coming in to Thanks, talk Amy. to me. It's great. And Thank you. Thank you. And uh, as I said, that was Ian and Stuart who have been speaking to me about their book, The Big Four. All the details are up on our social media. Uh, you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with me, Amy Mullins. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.